uh, reading from God's Word, Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Well, this morning we're going to look at the boyhood of the baby whose birth we just celebrated in Bethlehem to see what insights we might glean in what is almost 2015 in order to understand him more clearly and to follow him more nearly and to love him more dearly. Almost a third, almost 33% of the Gospels are devoted to the last seven days of Jesus' life. But of the 30 years between his verse, approximately 30 years, and uh, the outset of his ministry, we only have in the Gospels, the canonical Gospels, these 12 verses. So let's look together to see what facets we might learn about this God-man born in Bethlehem. The first facet I see here is this story tells what the infancy story tells in a different, perhaps more subtle way, the utter uniqueness, the amazing character of this young man, Jesus Christ. The Christmas story has already prepared us for this. My favorite uh, 20th century theologian, Karl Barth, said that the life of Jesus is bracketed by two miracles. It starts with a virginal conception and ends, of course, with a resurrection. Why was Jesus virginally conceived? I don't know why, but at least it means at least this. To end the ongoing cycle of our birthings and dyings in which we are trapped, bound in sin, God has acted with initiative. God has interrupted. God has broken the cycle. And so that utter uniqueness, that distinctiveness which we saw in the birth of Jesus now is continued here. For unto you is born this day a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Perhaps the whole main point of this boyhood narrative can be summed up in the concatenation, the collision of two understandings of Father. Mary and Joseph come back looking for their son, and uh, she says, My father and I have been looking for you, have been seeking you. And Jesus replies with 
Did you not know I would be in my father's house? It's as though right on the brink of manhood. Jesus is saying, I've come to understand my destiny, my priority, my treasure, and my life is going to be focused around my heavenly father. My father, your father and I have been seeking you. I would be in my father's house. Jesus said in the concatenation of those uh, elisions of father, a lot is told. Right on the in the next pericope, the next story in Luke's gospel, we're going to see Jesus encountering John the Baptist and his baptism, in which he hears the Father's voice says, This is my beloved Son. John's Gospel says, My monogenes, my one of a kind, my unique, my distinctive, my Son, like whom there is no other. At Golden Gate Seminary in class, when we get to this point in Christology, the study of Christ, I say, You know, how is Christ different from us? We are also invited to be adopted into sonship, sonship and daughterhood with the living God. How is his sonship unique, distinctive, decisive? And I have them memorize this sentence. I say his sonship, or rather our sonship and daughterhood, is dependent upon and derivative from his own unique, distinctive, eternal, one-of-a-kind sonship. The text goes on and describes this in terms of uh, people listening to him were amazed. They were astonished. Whenever I read those words, I'm reminded of the uh, privilege I had for several years to work with Cliff Connectly once or twice a year for four or five years at the University of Texas campus. And then on one occasion at the World Trade Center before it uh, obviously was uh, uh, attacked, and uh, Cliff was at that time, he's now a pastor in New Canaan, Connecticut, but a traveling evangelist with University. And uh, Christianity Today had an article about him reviving the art of open-air preaching. And Cliff would come, still does from time to time today, and uh, gather a crowd. He would say, here's the gospel. It's a very short, concise summary of the gospel. And he says, but I've been invited here, but I'm here with question and answer, give and take. Uh, anything you'd like to talk about? And in public arenas, usually one or two hundred people would gather and they would ask a question. And, of course, after just uh, two months, and he probably did this for 20 years, he'd heard every question that could ever be asked, so he would reframe it. He would restate it in a tougher, tighter uh, form than they could ever dream of asking. So he said, what you're asking is this. He'd re- restate it and say, thanks for that good question. And then he would give a summary of an answer. He's he's published them in about three different books. I often use them for evangelism. They're they're wonderful. A lot more can be said in each answer, but it's kind of like beautiful music where it's perfect pitch. Each each note, he really hits uh, the right notes in a page, a page and a half. And I would look around. What was I doing there? I gave a rest to his voice every hour. I did three or four minutes to... to, uh, He would do two or three hours, and I'd be up two or three times to sort of give him a... A pause and a time for a, uh, I was the weak link in the event. And uh, I would look around at the those that gathered. They almost without exception came to scoff. Here's another crazy preacher. And uh, because perhaps the idiom is, uh, is so poorly served. And then they would stand and be amazed at how cogent and incisive and clear and helpful and, and loving his answers were. 
those that listened to the boy Jesus were astonished and they were amazed by him. We sit in a time of counterfeit worldviews. You've heard me uh, share one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, Christianity is too good not to be true because all other worldviews, he says, are something we can imagine that we might make up by ourselves on a cold winter night with a hot cup of cocoa in front of a warm fire. But Christianity is unique. It's unimaginable. Here's a God who entered the world as a child, a victory which is wrought by a lamb slain from before the world's foundation, a king who humbles himself as a servant, a life that is purchased by death. The human mind has never thought up anything like that before. Other worldviews, other counter-worldviews are predictable and tame and safe and boring. We uh, have passed through a sweet season, a season full of Christmas spirit, but the Christmas spirit, good as it is, isn't deep enough. The Christmas spirit is seasonally inspired, but the spirit of Christ is eternally begotten. The Christmas spirit is humanly created, the Spirit of Christ is divinely bestowed. The Christmas spirit is sentimental, but the Spirit of Christ is supernatural. The great Indian evangelist D.T. Niles summarized the difference between Christianity and all the other world religions. He says it's simple. It's simply Christ. Christ is unique, utterly distinctive, amazing. That's the first facet. We see even in this story of the boy Jesus. But the second goes to almost the opposite place. The second facet of this story is how normal Jesus is. How natural his experiences are. Um, Once you've made the confession that Jesus is supernatural, Jesus is unique and decisive and divine, don't stop there. Or you miss the glory of the Christmas story. The Christmas story is Jesus is the God-man, that Jesus came near in Christ, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, that he shared our life. I cannot get my mind around, I, I don't know all that is involved in the confession that he was like us in all respects save for sin, but I think it partly involves things like this. That Jesus experienced life as you and I experience it. He walked to his death as you and I will walk to his death, not knowing everything that is on the other side, but knowing who is on the other side. He walked by faith. I don't think the man Jesus had a Cecil B. DeMille tape running in his brain in which he knew all things he could have. But for love of you and me, he limited himself. He poured himself out into human form. The text tells us that Jesus was in the temple, sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. This is the most interesting time in the history of scholarship to study Jesus. This is the golden age of Jesus studies has been for about 25 years, and one of the uh, signal insights in what some have called the third quest for the historical Jesus is we know so much more about Jesus' Jewish background. There he is acting rabbinically in the temple. I think I've shared with you once before, these days I hate to quote Woody Allen movies, although he... uh, 
he did, did at one time have a fairly good theological eye. He asked the right questions. And in one of his, his movies, the Woody Allen character uh, goes up to a rabbi and asks, why, why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question? And the rabbi thinks for a second and says, well, why shouldn't a rabbi always answer a question with a question? Jesus is standing in the rabbinical garb here, even as a young man. He is normal. Verse 42 summarizes everything. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew. Jesus learned. Jesus stretched and expanded. He experienced life as a person. One of the highlights of this particular Christmas season for me was the viewing of a holiday classic which somehow had escaped my attention for several decades. I had never seen Gene Shepard. I used to listen to him very occasionally when he was on the radio. But I was not aware of Gene Shepard's uh, collection of his short stories that had been put together into a film, A Christmas Story, and his alter ego, Ralphie, who turns heaven and earth to try to convince his parents and his teacher and Santa Claus that a Red Ryder BB gun would be the best and most perfect Christmas gift that anyone could ever be given. That film rehearses with affectionate humor many of the challenges of childhood. And while I wouldn't suggest that Jesus handle childhood with the same desperation and sometimes duplicity as Ralphie did, uh, neither do I think he was immune from all the wonder of growing up. Jesus grew in wisdom and favor with God and man. Jesus lived a life not only of uniqueness, but of normality. The Bible tells us that. As if we needed more proof of this, all we need to do is contrast it with many of the stories and legends that grew up in the second and third century. Other uh, non-canonical gospels, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of James, and many others. There are many stories about Jesus' infancy. How some children wouldn't play for him, so he turned them into goats. How a uh, bully came and knocked down his can, uh, sandcastle, so he withered them. How uh, Jesus took a dyer of a fine uh, clothes and poured them all, just like a boy would do, poured them all into a black indigo ink. And the uh, dying merchant is up in arms. He said, oh, this is my livelihood. People know me for my great colors. And so the boy Jesus said, well, what color would you like them to be? And one by one, he pulled the, the, the cloth out of the indigo ink and the color that the uh, uh, clothier asked for it to be. Perhaps uh, perhaps the most famous because it occurs in the Quran as well, in Sarah, the third chapter of the Quran, that uh, Jesus, it's not only there, it's in some other sources too, but uh, the boy Jesus took and he, he formed out of clay some pigeons, 12 of them, and he breathed on them and they flew off. Now compared with that collection of stories, aren't we struck by how normal these 12 verses are. They are straightforward. Compared with the other, they are, 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 are almost boring. They're modest. They tell of the greatness of Jesus, but indirectly, 
They are straightforward. Jesus lived a life of normalcy. The good news of that, that he is the God-man, is that he has literally gotten inside our skin. He understands how we live, what our needs are. The church father Athanasian says God could redeem only that which he has assumed. So in Jesus Christ, God has assumed our nature. And it also means that there is no debt we will ever owe, no defeat we will ever undergo, no desperation that we will ever know, no disappointment we will endure, no discouragement we will feel, no darkness through which we will need to walk. That Christ has not been there with us and before us and is able to carry us through. He is the God-man. Three more points, and I'll make them even quicker. Uh, the other, another facet I see in here is that Mary and Joseph, even if it be for a season, lose Jesus. They lose their child. Now, this might be stretching a little bit. For those of you who are in seminary, I might be isogeting a little bit here, but go with me on this. One of the tragedies of life is to lose Jesus. It's a danger for those of you, for those of us that have been raised in the church, that have been benefited by the blessings of Christians who have heard the gospel, to grow up and live our life and lose Christ. How do we lose something? Another Christmas classic, not one of my favorites, but it has become a classic, uh, Home Alone, where Macaulay Cullen plays Kevin McCulty. And uh, all the family goes off at Christmas time internationally, and they leave Kevin behind. And uh, most of you have seen that and know the dilemmas that he works his way out. So that's, that's a parent's horror. That's a parent's nightmare to lose their child. Uh, perhaps there was a different cultural time back then. Jesus was 12, almost a man. There was more of a corporate responsibility. And, but at any rate, perhaps they took for granted that Jesus had never done anything like that before. They took him for granted. They took their eyes off him. For whatever reason, they lost him. I don't believe it's possible, having been found by Jesus, for him to let us go. But perhaps it is possible for us to come near and then to allow him to go out of sight. I make no judgments about this, but uh, one of the interesting things of my youth or middle years was Bob Dylan's flirting, maybe more than that, with the Christian faith. Many of you know in the 70s and late 70s and 80s, he came out with two Christian albums, Slow Train Coming and Saved. And a great song, Gotta Serve Somebody. John Lennon, hating the fact that an idol of his had become a Christian, wrote his own song. In answer to that song, it was entitled, Serve Yourself. But in the mid-80s, I don't know what to make of this. I'd like to uh, just attribute it to Dylan's enigma-like character, but I worry about it. He wrote in the mid-80s that uh, whoever said I was a Christian, like Gandhi, 
I'm Christian, I'm Jewish, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Hindu, I'm a humanist. I fear that uh, for any of us who have come sight of the wonder of Jesus, that we lose sight of him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, I never lost my master's company at a funeral. But such a thing is more than possible at a wedding. I never lost my Savior's presence in the house of mourning, by the bedside of the sick and dying. But I've sometimes felt the suspension of fellowship with my Lord when the musical instruments have been sounding in my ear and when joy and gladness ruled the hour. Our happy moments are our most perilous moments. Fourthly, I see a facet in this story of Jesus' reverence for the Father. As, As far as we know, and we know fairly far, Jesus supported, he reinterpreted, but he supported all the traditional ways of worship in the culture which he inherited. He honored the synagogue, he honored the temple, he uh, reverenced the things of God. I have high hopes for heaven, but if it simply matches talking theology at a place like San Andrews or Oxford or Golden Gate Seminary, for that matter, I will not be disappointed. One uh, afternoon at Oxford University, I was uh, talking with one of the dons there about one of my major professors, Dale Moody, who uh, was nothing if not loquacious, talkative about theological issues. And I brought up Dr. Moody's name and a look of consternation passed across uh, this theologian's face and he said, You know, I like talking theology too, but not at breakfast. (laughs) Reverence for Christ, reverence, the reverence of Christ for the things of God. He loved the synagogue, he loved the temple. And what is the uh, splendiferous Jewish musical, Fiddler on the Roof? There's a great song, If I Were a Rich Man. And it rehearses all the things that uh, Tevye thinks about in his fantasy life, about what he would do if he had enough money. But the height of the height, the apex of the apex, the zenith of the zenith, is if he were a rich man, he would study the Torah all day long. And in the production I saw, uh, Zero Mostel took the Torah, the holy book, and took it up to his lips and kissed it. There's a reverence for the things of God. This place is holy. Not because there is a uh, cosmic difference between sacred and profane. Every place that Christ has created, that God has created in Christ, is sacred. But there is something holy about places where we have met holiness, which we set apart to edify and to educate and to share and to evangelize. This is a holy place because people have grown up in Christ here, because people have met Christ here, because Christ has been praised here. When I uh, wrote my essay for seminary, I remember one of the lines. I said, uh, the soaring gray halls of the sanctuary in which I was raised. I regularly felt the presence of the living God and remembering it, I can to this day. I feel it in this place. 
in the church where R.C. Sproul preaches, St. Andrew's Church in Sanford, Florida. On the website where it talks about worship, you can find this phrase. When we come to worship in the sanctuary, we cross the threshold of the secular to the sacred, from the common to the uncommon, from the profane to the holy, from darkness to light. And finally, I see in this story about the boy Jesus a prioritizing, a focus on the things that are eternal. Albert Einstein said that the definition of genius is to be able to think one thing at a time. Søren Kierkegaard said that purity of heart is to be able to will one thing. First things first, and last things not at all. There is, I'm told, a kind of focusing presence of power that comes to a person or can come when they are nearing death. This November, I lost one of my dear friends, Clive Havard, in Wales. You had been praying for him. And this week, I received from his widow the uh, bulletin of his funeral service. And along with it, accompanied with it, were some commentaries that Clive had written and which were shared when each of the hymns were sung. One of them particularly moved me. I had never heard it before. It was a Welsh hymn, or at least written by a Welsh man, Titus Lewis. And some of the lyrics go like this. The first line starts with the title. Its title is Mighty Christ from Time Eternal. Mighty Christ from time eternal, mighty he who man's nature takes, mighty when on Calvary dying, mighty death itself he breaks. See his might? Infinite. King of heaven and earth by right. Great my Jesus is his person, great as God and man is he, great his comeliness and beauty, great that sight, sovereign might, throne secure on heaven's height. And Clive wrote these words, a, a man's last will and testament, a voice coming, if you will, to us from beyond the grave. Everybody who thus trusts in God as revealed in the Bible will be led to see that all blessings come from God are through the Lord Jesus Christ. This hymn, to me, epitomizes that. The Lord Jesus Christ is not merely a prophet, king, or man, but he is God of very God. God in the flesh. And it appears to me that no finer expression can be given to this thought in the words of this glorious hymn. What do we see in this one text about the amazing, astonishing life of Jesus, who is the Christ? We see in the first place that he was utterly unique, one of a kind, supernatural. 
At the same time, we see that he was utterly normal. He got inside of our skin. He shared our life. He lived the life that you and I were created to live, that you and I might come to live the life that he came to give. Thirdly, we see that the greatest tragedy in life of all comes when we lose sight of him, when we miss the purpose of our living. And fourth, we see that the greatest wisdom of life comes from reverencing the things of God, those things that are holy. And finally, we should find our ultimately priority, our ultimate priority on the things of the great God who has come near to us in Christ. Living and holy God, we are astonished by your greatness and love and power and purpose and vulnerability and nearness and kindness and mercy and love. May we so live that others knowing us, that others seeing us, might see a portion of your light shining in their darkness through us. May it be so. In Jesus' name.